This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch, episode 27, covering DGUSA Bushido 2011, Code of the Warrior from November 12th, 2011, from the former ECW arena, I believe on this show, it's called the New Alhambra Arena in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed, or you can find us on our own dedicated feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to donate to the show, just take, click the link on the show notes. It'll take you to Red Circle. You click the red, but, red button on Red Circle, and you get a link to do either a one-time donation or a reoccurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but we certainly appreciate it. And thank you to our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. And I'm joined, as always, by Case Lowe. And Case, this is it. This is the last show from the former ECW arena for DGUSA. The last show from the first, or <laughs> it is the last show from the former ECW arena, the, the home of the first show of Dragon USA. It is, Mike, not to correct you minutes into the show, but it is the Asylum Arena at this point. We are we are live in Philadelphia from the Asylum Arena. For, is it the Asylum Arena? My, I thought it was New Alhambra. Man, that was before the Asylum. It became the Asylum okay. after that. And we're, we're here talking about one of my favorite Dragon USA shows ever. Yeah, we are going to be talking about the second to last, the penultimate show of 2011. DGUSA is back in Philadelphia for the last time. They'll not be returning back to Philadelphia while DGUSA exists. And it's it's a wild show, and there's a lot of things that are happening, and there's a lot of things that are happening across the wrestling world, Case. And we have a pretty special timeline cooked up for you all this this time. So should we just get it? Get underway with that. Do you have anything else you want to talk about before we get into this timeline? No, this is a, an episode primarily talking about the U.S. wrestling scene uh, in November of 2011, which, as it turns out, is a fascinating place to be. I know next week there's going to be some Japan notes, some U.S. notes. Ne- next week going to be a, a lot of different things. This week we're sticking in the U.S. Uh, we'll talk a little FCW, a little wrestling retribution project. We've got AIW notes for, I believe, the first time. But, Mike... We start the episode, and I will let you do the honors of explaining what the fuck Teddy Hart was doing during this time. All right, this comes from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter from September 26, 2011. I'm, I'm going to pick a couple quotes here, but it is an interview that he did, he did with Live Audio Wrestling, talking about Stampede Wrestling. And the fact is that Teddy, along with his cousin, 
Harry Smith, a.k.a. Davey Boy Smith Jr., used the famed Stampede Wrestling name on September 9th for an indie show outside Calgary where they headlined against the Young Bucks. Teddy hasn't changed much, claiming that the show would be distributed internationally on television through the AAA promotion, and parentheses Dave notes, Hart hasn't even worked with the promotion for over a year, and claimed that they would be bringing back a regular TV show like Stampede Wrestling. Ross Hart, Teddy and Harry's uncle, co-owns the name Stampede Wrestling along with Bruce Hart, and Ross had no idea this show was being billed as Stampede Wrestling, saying he wanted to distance himself from saying Stampede Wrestling. Bruce said he was uneasy about the use of his name, but didn't want to say anything negative because several members of his family were on the show. He said he didn't even know that they used the name until he saw posters, and doesn't want them to use the name until he believes they own it. And Bruce says, if it evolves into something that's even remotely close to Stampede once was, I'm in favor of it. And now here we go. Here is what Teddy Hart has planned for Stampede Wrestling. In case, really at this time, uh, wrestling in the Calgary area, other than like the famed Death Tours, kind of was non-existent other than random Hart family members running shows. So this is not uncommon for the time that Teddy decided to do this. And just like, I don't even remember the fact that they had the Hart Foundation or like what are they called? The Hart Legacy have a match against the Young Bucks. Like do you, I don't think this match ever made out anywhere. Did you... Were you familiar with this match until I dropped this nugget on you? Uh, no, this was very much new information. All right, so here's what Teddy Hart has to say about this. Teddy Hart that claims that he feels as a member of the Hart family, he's entitled to use the name of Stampede Wrestling on shows he's on. Teddy said that he wanted this version of Stampede Wrestling to be a Lucha Libre-style promotion. He said in an interview of Live Audio Wrestling gave me a vision of the product, and I quote, I would like to see mechanically altered weapons and things like that. Chairs that change sides, sizes. Ladders that get longer. So you can be on a ladder and press a button and it gives you another three or five feet if you want to go higher. Higher is ratings. If you can have the fans all typing in their phone and you want to see Ted Hart go an extra five feet in the air, everyone's got three, 30 seconds to type in a code into their phone. If the code's in, I get my combination from the referee, I climb another five feet. He also wants more run-ins from animals. And I quote... <laughs> I'm training cats to come out to the ring with me, and I'm also training animals to get involved with matches. I'm trying to get safety animals, like dog, to basically pull the referee's leg before the count of three, little things like this. Or my dog will be carrying a weapon for me, and I would get this off his neck. Teddy Hart. Oh, man. Oh, I I missed the line, I also want more run-ins from animals. I missed that when I read over the notes. (laughs) I mean... Teddy Hart, utterly repellent person. Like, yes, there's I, no defending him I, I whatsoever. Know, I know when we were in Phoenix for WrestleMania weekend, I uh, spoke not highly of Teddy Hart, but I said he was a guilty pleasure. I would like to revoke that statement and say that although he is just a terrible person, I am still so entertained by him. I mean, it's just, like, insane. Like... The idea, like, of course, like him talking about things getting extended and like changing up matches. He was involved with the Matt Rats, the Eric Bischoff, like Calgary promotion, like one of the other failed reboots of Calgary where like they try to have um, trampoline platforms on top of the turnbuckles. And this is where like, uh, this is where Jack Evans really kind of got his start with. And he talked about like, oh yeah, no, those platforms sucked. So just imagining this and of course, Teddy Hart with animals. We'll get back to him at the end of the series about animals, but Teddy Hart, everyone. Just so you got a sense of where wrestling is, and this was a truly insane thing, I dropped this on Case. I'm like, Case, I'm not going to tell you what this is. I'm dropping an insane Teddy Hart interview where a very, very sick person has a very insane idea. 
How much Matt Rats is out there? Not a lot. I tried to find it out a long time ago. Yeah, that's right up your alley. That seems that seems like some Patreon <laughs> shit you would be into. I, I would I would really like to see that see the light of the day some way because I would like to really evaluate all of it that was taped, but I just don't know if that will ever happen. I mean, we got Super Astros out there. I guess those tapes were recovered. I still don't think they're on the network, but I know those are on YouTube. I would like to see the full run of Matt Rats at some point. Case, I'll make this promise to you right now. If I find Matt Rats, I'll let you know and we'll do a Patreon show about Matt Rats. We will will make sure this this happens. I'm, I'm committed to the idea of that. Look, I love this show. I love sitting down with you every week and talking about Drang at USA. I love when I'm on the Patreon. That's really, that's why I'm here. I'm here to do this show to leverage myself onto the Everything Elite Patreon. So I'm glad to hear that if those cards turn up, uh, that we will we will be the ones talking about them. Uh, oh, there's no way I'd let Aaron or Nate touch that. I mean, they, they wouldn't be able to, I mean, Nate would find it really interesting. Aaron wouldn't know what to do with this. I'm someone who is a true purveyor of garbage things. <laughs> I'm a trash man, so no one should look at that show before I do. <laughs> so we'll make sure that happens. So that was that was one thing I made sure to include on the notes, but we also had just a lot of interesting things happening in the fall of 2011. Yeah, so we go to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, October 3rd, 2011, the State of WWE Developmental, in which Dave writes, Seth Rollins, who was formerly Tyler Black in ROH, lost the FCW 15 title on September 22nd of the TV tapings to Damian Sandow, formerly Aaron Idol Stevens when he was in WWE, managed by Michelle McCool years ago. I believe that's a title only defended in 15-minute Iron Man matches. They were tied one-to-one with a few seconds left when Dean Ambrose, formerly John Moxley, who was feuding with Rollins, attacked Sandow and not Rollins. This led to a DQ, and I guess the title can change hands via DQ. Another major feud is Husky Harris versus Richie Steamboat. Harris was going for the FCW title held by Leo Kruger when he went after Steamboat and ended up getting beat. Harris was going for revenge because Kruger is being given credit for the lacerated kidney legit injury that is keeping Harris's real-life brother, Bo Rotunda, out of action. Yes, they do a brother combination with different last names and make it clear Harris is the son of Mike Rotunda. Claudio <laughs> Castagnoli made his TV debut at the tapings with a win over Mike Dalton, who I believe is Tyler Breeze. Mike, am I correct yes. in that statement? Yes. Yes, it's... Mm-hmm. I, uh, Tyler Breeze had a lot of stock in him at one point. Really wanted a better career out of him. I mean, but... who didn't out of an XT? Yes, that's uh, w- worst case scenario there. It's a shame that he became what he became. Uh, Claudio is using the name Mr. Antonio Cesaro and does the same gimmick he's been doing for years, being very European and using the Ricola bomb as his finish. Andy Levine from Tough Enough is back working as Kevin Hackman, while Christina Crawford is back using her old ring name of Kaylee Turner. It's all about wanting to own everyone's name at this point. Ricardo Rodriguez is there working as a heel ring announcer who loses when he wrestles. Titus O'Neil and Oh Yeah Percy Watson have been teaming up on NXT. Uh, they also team up here. Jinder Mahal is working FCW, FCW shows. Shaw Guerrero, the daughter of Eddie and Vicky as uh, Raquel Diaz is now managing Connor O'Brien. So we'll take a quick break there. This is around the time that it seems like FCW started to heat up. Started We started to see more footage because it was uh, Moxley and Rollins and Claudio 
and it just seemed like an interesting time for the promotion. It leads to that Dean Ambrose versus William Regal match a few months down the line, and we get an update from Dave on November 14th that I think proves my point that this is really when FCW started uh, heating up, in which Dave says... We're going to start having more FCW coverage going forward. At the 11-3 tapings, they had a four-way to determine the top contender for the FCW title, held by Leo Kruger, with Abraham Washington winning over Husky Harris, Richie Steamboat, and Derek Bateman, who was with Maxine on this show. Brad Maddox and Briley Pierce won the tag team titles from CJ Parker and Donnie Marlowe, who is the son of Haku and the brother of New Japan's Tamatanga. Yes, Tangaloa was in FCW, and I did not know that until minutes before we came <laughs> on the air. Uh, and then there's some other notes in here about Bo Rotunda being back on TV, Damian Sandow uh, holding the FCW title and defending it against Jack Briscoe, or I guess, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Dave comparing him to Jack Briscoe. Uh, Dean Ambrose challenged for the title. However, when they had the match, Sandow beat Ambrose in three straight falls. Kruger also retained beating Washington with his feet on the ropes. The big feud remains Husky Harris versus Richie Steamboat. Mike, I talked about how I still have, I, I had a bunch of Andy Dalton stock. I also at one point had a ton of Richie Steamboat stock, and I turned out to be incorrect on both fronts. I mean... Richie Steamboat, I mean, like, he has, like, I mean, like, if he didn't get, like, the massive back injury, he probably would have had, like, a 10-year WWE career, you know? Like, he's yeah. someone that, like, it's easy to have stock. Like, that was an easy buy, you know? So it's just all, like, really interesting, especially, like, the idea of, like, the the idea of, like, Tough Enough being such a flame out that Andy Levine's back here. You have, like, a lot of... This is kind of like the pre-NXT of a lot of the indie darlings are there. I remember like trying to find Daily Motion or YouTube of whenever this uh, this made air. I was in Florida, but I didn't have the station. It was on Bright House, which was based on the Gulf Coast. And I, I only had Fox, Fox Sports Florida for my local cable promotion. It was like a really wild thing because like you, you, you talk about like in 2020 how WWE has had to go empty arena and has done stuff in developmental. They taped this thing at like a former – that was the FCW arena, which was like a former supermarket. And they had like banners and it very much like looked like how developmental wrestling looked for a long time, but it was a very easy watch. And you had a lot of interesting things going on. Like Husky Harris, of course, that is the fiend Bray Wyatt, Leo Kruger, the former Adam Rose. And just like looking up and down, like the, the names that people they're using, the names that did not make it out of SCW at this time. I believe this was the time of the infamous Seth Rollins motorcycle photo. I don't know about the Seth Rollins motorcycle photo. Oh, so FCW, its website was insane. It had some great photos. Have you ever seen like an FCW roster photo? Yes, I love those. I'm looking at these Seth Rollins motorcycle photos now. Oh my goodness. Yeah, FCW, just a wild thing at a wild time. I mean, he had Connor O'Brien, who of course is Connor of the Ascension, along with him and Rick Victor. It's just like a crazy like promotion of people who just like came th through here. Like I just did like a Google search of this, like. Dean Ambrose, Leaky, who'd later be Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, Brett DiBiase, who's now in the news for uh, expropriating <laughs> Medicare funds, uh, Leo Kruger, Buck Dixon, Brodus Clay, CJ Parker, the current uh, uh, Juice Robinson, uh, Damian Sandow, Biggie Langson, Xavier Woods, Richie Steamboat, Mason Ryan, remember Mason Ryan, that was a name, Eric, Eric Rowan, Kazma Sakamoto, our good friend. Kazma Sakamoto, of course, was a part of NFCW at the time. It's just like a wild, like, promotion. Oh, yeah, Alex Kozlov as Peter Orlov and Alexander Rusev. 
obviously this era of FCW had no shot of hitting the highs that current day NXT would hit. Although the Ambrose Regal matches are legitimately outstanding, but I vastly prefer this compared to the current NXT product. I I really, my enjoyment of NXT was on a steady decline in this. I I know this will sound hot take-ish for the sake of a hot take, but I began progressively enjoying NXT less and less once they made their way onto the network. I really like the formation of NXT as we know it as developmental into 2013 when it's a lot of Neville and Cassius Ono and the early Wyatt family before they were absolutely atrocious. And it is really the network era of NXT that I've had very little connection to outside of the match of the year contenders at TakeOver. I really like the latter days of FCW and the early days of NXT. I, I honestly miss it. I think it's a very fun time to look back on. And it's something like just looking at like these photos of like people, like one of the photos are all insane. Like it, it was like this, like, yeah, like people like Lance Archer was in FCW at this time. Wild. Trent Beretta. I mean, he was there as well. And it's just like a lot of people like coming through. And I mean, it's not like that. It's like a world beating thing, but it was like generally, it was always like a highlight to like, stock up like four episodes of FCW and watch through FCW. Like it wasn't like outstanding stuff, but always was like a nice satisfying watch. And this is kind of the build of that. Well, it would be hard to stock up on footage for our next topic. We go to the wrestling observer newsletter on October 24th, 2011, the wrestling revolution project taped its first season in Los Angeles this past week. Prince Devitt, who was initially booked for uh, WRP, which I did not know, Devitt had visa issues and wasn't allowed in the country, as did Sean Spears. So they were replaced uh, last minute by Chris Hero, whose WWE deal has been delayed, although it is still expected that he will wind up there. And Brian Cage, a former WWE developmental wrestler who now works the Indies in California. They taped a 13-week season from October 10th to October 12th at the Jim Henson Studios in Los Angeles. They had an audience of both wrestling fans and extras slash actors that were better dressed to give it a better look. The ring announcing was done. uh, The ring announcing will be done by actor Keith David, who was on uh, They Live and the Cape. Uh, The music will be done by a guy who does network TV scores. Tommy Dreamer, Lance Storm, and Christopher Daniels worked as producers. Everyone was given different characters, and it was played like a 13-week television series. No other wrestling would be acknowledged on the broadcast. Producer Jeff Katz told everyone that they are in a world where there is no WWE, no WWE, and no TNA. And the idea is that this is an underground pro wrestling club only open to people who are involved with illegal gambling. <laughs> <laughs> there are no championships belt, no championship belts, but there was a singles tournament and a tag team tournament. Cat said he was modeling it after New Japan's G1 Climax tournament with the idea the winners get trophies and a big check. If there is a second season, they start fresh and don't have to worry about bringing back existing champions. And if it is only one season, the end of the tournament is a strong climax. The first day was filled with squash matches with stars going over against local talent. The star vs. star matches were worked WWE style and pretty good, and any botches, botched spots were shot again. The talent is doing similar gimmicks uh, to what they would do in most cases, but with different names. Adam Pierce is still the same character, but used the name Ridgeway. Psycho Mike Rollins is still a psycho, but his name is Murder. Sean Devari is named Ferris Gotch. Cole Cabana is doing a new character, a heel who is a failed stand-up comedian using the name Punchline. It was different, 
but said to be good. Joey Ryan, <laughs> I, I I enjoy the punchline uh, uh, idea. Joey do, Ryan, do you know who it was supposed to be before you get into this next person? You know who Cole has said he based it off of? I, I gotta guess Chris Gethard. Mark Marin. <laughs> like he had glasses <laughs> like Marin too. That rules. That I'm glad I know that. Uh, unfortunately, Joey Ryan is a babyface who plays the role of being gay, but is far from the stereotype gay uh, character in pro wrestling. There are no effeminate mannerisms. It's just noted that he is gay. He has uh, actress Trisha uh, LaFoch as his valet and uses the name Chase Walker. Amazing Red works with a mask. Kevin Matthews plays a Hollywood slimy actor who texts during his matches. Uh, Dr. Luther plays a satanic priest described as WWE's Mordecai gimmick, but better performed. Sammy Callahan and Alex Zikos are a tag team called Satanic and Profitable, or SNP. Sean Ricker and Brian Cage are a tag team known as Jontourage. Dave has in parentheses Entourage. With a bodyguard named Brick Shithouse, Brick Shithouse and Dave the Bruiser got the most reactions on the first day. Finally, we go to the second day, where Dave says the second day had main event matches in the tournaments. None of the matches were PWG or ROH quality, but were solid WWE-style matches, better than a lot of WWE matches. Kenny Omega, known as Scott Carpenter, was the star, with strong matches against Chris Masters, known as Concrete, and Killshot, who was Carl Anderson. The match with Anderson had an unplanned chandelier glass explosion. Chris Hero, as Chris Hyde, also had great matches. The crowd was hot, helping out all the matches. MVP is now the Lord of War and dresses up like wrestler Masahiro Chono, including using the STF and Yakuza kick as his big moves. The big angle is when two heels reveal that Chase Walker is gay, but he wrestles like any other underneath babyface, doesn't dress flamboyantly or prance around or do any gay comedy. Cats wanted people to know that the gimmick... Cats uh, wanted people to know the gimmick and said he loved WWE for WWE to steal it, noting they'd screw it up anyways. Clark Duke from the Hot Tub Time Machine movies was there on the third day. <laughs> they also had a giant elimination match featuring most of, most of the wrestlers. Among the best matches were Hyde versus Lord of War, Hyde versus Killshot, and Cornerstone versus Johnny 99, who was Luke Gallows. Also getting a good reaction was Pat Buck under the name Muncie McGee. The final episode is like a pay-per-view show with lot, lots of quality matches. It was shot to make it look like a film rather than a TV show. Mike Spears, The Wrestling Revolution Project, your thoughts? Well, I was an idiot, and I gave money to this thing. <laughs> uh, at, the, at the time and age, I was like, oh, yeah, no, this looks awesome. I had people on it that like I'd follow on the indies, and Jeff Katz, when he was around, like really made it sound like that this was going to be a its own unique thing and like a good use of Kickstarter. I think only recently during COVID did Jeff Katz release any of the matches nine match nine years later. I still have not watched it, even though I'm technically entitled to, I think a full DVD box set of these shows. It's just like looking at this and there's a lot of like formations of things that would be executed and actually be executed to a level of success, regardless of what you think about Lucha Underground. I don't think Katz was involved in it whatsoever, but he had people who were, and you can see like a through line there. Dr. Luther making an appearance. I mean, how can't you be excited about the, the original Death Dealer, the uh, Japanese deathmatch legend, Luther playing a satanic priest, and then just the idea that a bodyguard is called Brick Shithouse. <laughs> like, that is just incredible. But like, it was like built up as his own thing. I remember like 
this was also when like MVP was really active. Like he was one of the, the few stars who did like a really like solid uh, uh, vlog and he would do stuff in Japan talking about working for New Japan and how much he was a big fan of Masahiro Chono and in, like one of his biggest moments of his wrestling life was like meeting Masahiro Chono and dedicating a character off of him. Just like a wild thing that like nothing ever really came of it and then corresponded also with a time where like also um, Nigel McGuinness did like the last of the McGuinness documentary and how he was transitioning away from wrestling. It just was like a very wild thing that, you know, there were a lot of people other than me who lost 50 bucks on this promotion. Maybe one day I'll go out and seek the YouTube shows and see how much is out there. But, you know, just just the fact that this thing existed and the way it was reported and the way it completely just ghosted is something that I felt was pretty wild. And why I, when I saw this one, I was coming through the notes for the Observer, I was like, all right, Case, we need to have this on here. Did you ever end up watching any of these matches? I so I could be wrong. I believe everything was uploaded at the start of COVID. That was like one of the first things to be unearthed. I definitely saw a little bit of it. Nothing particularly stood out, but I I think I watched the first episode. It, it just was something that like it was shot in a certain way and it was like created in a certain way that the fact that it like happened and like he made a lot of money off this. Like Kat said, it was a hundred thousand dollars to Chris Jericho, of course, tossing a lot of money with it and it had like a pretty intense roster i mean alex reynolds was a part of it uh amazing red of course uh kenny omega like his like other than like his independent run like the big thing like this and you had like a lot of names who came in here and did this and it was kind of remarkable in that sort of way it's really weird to look at this and it's almost similar to like the bolos of 2013 and 2014 where you now look at those tournaments and so many of those people are signed to major league contracts and here it's no different with Carl Anderson and Prince Devitt who was supposed to be in it and Kenny Omega and Colt Cabana and MVP who's getting the biggest push of his career in 2020 it's just I'm glad it exists I it's a shame it took so long to air, but I'm glad this concept was executed at least once. Yeah, uh, by the way, someone who has not mentioned that note, though, was a part of the uh, Wrestling uh, Retribution Project. For DGUSA alum condone as Stan Shooter. Simply oh, what a, what Stan a great Shooter. Name. What a great name. I would book Stan Shooter tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, Ken Dung, go fuck off, but Stan Shooter, you can come work the undercard of my shows. And oh yeah, Timothy Thatcher was on these shows too. Yeah, no, there, just, that's maybe, maybe, maybe after Dragon USA, maybe we do the Wrestling Revolution project because there I is mean, so much good stuff that is just. I'm not sure if it's good, but it's fascinating. It's it, it's just remarkable. Like it just is like this, and you know, uh, I'm now looking at you. This Nigel McGinnis was the commentator as Vivian Viv Edmondson. That is painfully on brand for Nigel. That's like if I was going to create the Nigel Baguettes knockoff character, that's probably what I'm naming him. Yeah, yeah. And apparently Jeff Katz now is online and has put up a lot of stuff here with his own commentator. Commentation about this. It One of the things I noted, they notes in this, is how much he was excited about Nick Katz becoming the president of, of WWE or CEO, whatever the agent guy coming in here. Well, Mike, believe it or not, that's not the only series of shows we're talking about on this episode that took a long time to surface. We turn our attention to FIP Full Impact Pro and the Jeff Peterson Memorial Cup of 2011. I will start by reading 
a really well-written passage uh, that TJ Hawk wrote for 411 Mania in which TJ says, The 2011 edition happened in late October and received rave reviews from those in attendance, meager attendance as it was. For FIP and WWN in general, it seemed like the perfect timing for a feel-good weekend. Evolve was in disarray, Drangate USA had lost much of its luster, WWN was basically bleeding goodwill. A tournament full of fresh and exciting names with reportedly a great environment and getting great live press seemed like something that only could could only benefit WWN, but they did not capitalize on the positivity radiating from the weekend. Fans tried their best to convince the pr promotion to release the shows, but WWN somehow never did. It was a baffling decision. The only silver lining was that as the months went by, the tournament's reputation only grew and created increased demand for the shows to be released. The hype became so much so quickly that I decided I would do my best to stay spoiler-free all these years later, and I was mostly able to accomplish that as I only learned about the results of the tournament in the broadest of strokes. Releasing the shows on DVD, Blu-ray, On Demand seemed like an easy way to make money. The shows languished, though, in unwashed obscurity. Sure, a few things leaked out via hand cam here there, but it was not the same thing. Luckily for me, one of my closest friends, Jacob Cohen, got married recently and he was gifted the only copy of the show. I, of course, made sure in my week down in Florida for the wedding that I watched the tournament. I needed to see for myself if it was the weekend, if the weekend was as good as people said. It was finally time to find out. Mike, what is your knowledge of the lore of the Jeff Peterson Memorial Cup 2011? Oh, that it was like a big FIP thing. Jeff Peterson was someone that was a pretty known commodity on the Florida Indies at the time and passed away at a young age. And they, th this was also something that like when we talked about like, the formation DGUSA, Gabe booking the first one kind of brought him back into wrestling before DGUSA was launched. So it's where we discovered John Moxley. When, when Moxley debuted, we talked a lot about FIP and how much the 2009 tournament meant to Gabe. Yeah, so, I mean, like, this had a level of goodwill here. There were people on these shows that I know for the time this was, like, a big thing. I know that, like, I think Eric Stevens was a part of these shows, and this was, like, the last time that Eric Stevens wrestled up until 2019, I think. It just seemed like, and, like, these shows were recorded, and I remember, like, reading about the Newswires, and I was I was never going to really watch them. I remember hearing, like, people thought that this was, like, a really well-done weekend, and then it just never came out. I think it only recently came out right before... WWN was bought by WWE or they activated their option on that. Yeah, it's uh it's a show that I have not seen. I was very familiar with how much people wanted to see it, but I have not had the chance to sit down and watch these shows and I don't know if I have the option anymore. I I do not see Eric Stevens on these shows. Uh, I'm sure it's a Florida indie. I'm sure he was lurking around somewhere, but Mike, I will read you the tournament results if you're okay with that unless you want to still stay spoiler free on JPC 2011. No, go ahead. What were they? On October 28th, 2011, the first night of the tournament, we saw Lindsay Dorado defeating Lewis Linden, Jarrell Clark, Mr. 630, defeating Aaron Epic, Mike Cruz, someone we will talk about at length a few episodes from now, Mike Cruz defeating Pinky Sanchez, Bobby Fish defeating Jonathan Gresham, Flip Kendrick defeating Johnny Vandal, Papadon, ugh, Papadon defeating Chris Jones, A.R. Fox defeating Jake Manning. There was an FIP tag team title match in which the scene captured the FIP belts against the Dark City Fight Club. In the main event of night one, Johnny Gargano defeating John Silver. That's a pretty good looking night one. Yeah, I mean, especially like that's real young John Silver too. 
Yeah, very much so. Night two, the next night, October 29th, 2011, Mike Cruz defeated Jarrell Clark. A.R. Fox defeated Flip Kendrick. Bobby Fish defeated Papadon. Johnny Gargano defeated Jonathan Gresham. There was a Florida Heritage title match in which Uha Nation defeated Jake Manning. The semifinals of the tournament saw A.R. Fox defeating Bobby Fish and Johnny Gargano defeating Mike Cruz. And the finals of the JPC 2011 A.R. Fox defeats Johnny Gargano. I mean, this is all pretty on brand, I would say, wouldn't you, for like how Gabe would be booking things right there, especially considering where DGUSA was. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting, like, now I'm looking at these cards, like, the people that are involved there, and with the exception of some of the others, like, these are, like, relatively, like, names that, with the exception of some, I remember Chris Jones being an FCW guy. And uh, some of the others, like, this is, like, put up as like a big weekend for this and it just never came out you know just never came out i guess it only recently came out and you know i don't know if it even still exists out there i'm certain there's like a torrent somewhere to watch these shows but just interesting stuff jake manning fip florida heritage champion at one point oh boy that's uh not the way i would have booked it but more power to jake manning he truly does seem like a nice human being As we continue to bounce around the Indies, we're going to go back to the beginning of October really quickly. October 2nd, 2011, we go to AIW in Cleveland. Mike, there's two matches on this show that pertain to Dragon Gate USA. One of them is the opener, BJ Whitmer versus Davey Richards, in which BJ won in 14 minutes. And then a match later on down the card... A match that is for free on YouTube, one that I highly recommend people check out if they have not seen it, AR Fox versus Uha Nation, in a match that, you know, if Uha first went on people's radars in Indianapolis, in Chicago, and Milwaukee, it is this match against AR Fox, in which Uha Nation truly started to become a name on the independent scene. Yeah, like, and this is like an era where AIW had its presence, I would say, I mean... It's now much more of a known quantity, but AIW was seen as like the Chicago or the not Chicago, the Cleveland Indy. So like, and it's seen as like the place where Johnny Gargano came from. So it, it's interesting stuff. I know I've gone back and watched like the Tozawa versus Gargano match from, I think it was the uh, Jaylet from the year that he was a part of it. So it's an interesting promotion, but it's a promotion that just because of time, and to be honest, a lot of this. A lot of the Ohio Indy people that were booked at that time don't interest me then. They were going back to see. But BJ Whitmer versus Davey Richards at that time. Davey was not taking very many indie bookings. And was not jobbing on many indie bookings at that. Right, yeah. Like, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, AIW is a promotion that... This era of the promotion is very different from what they currently are. Now they feed into nostalgia and meme wrestling and i'm sorry john thorne i just do not care about your current day product there was a time four or five years ago where i tried to work out a deal with aiw to review their shows because they had capitalized on the american lucha scene with zima ion and they brought in they brought in flamita before anybody else did flamita's first american booking was an aiw show and there was a point where they were using flamita and laredo kid and gringo loco and skyda jr and all of these luchadors i really liked john thorne actually talked publicly about it and how it was just such a hassle to book those guys there was always logistical issues and they were too expensive to book so they pivoted away from it which was a real bummer because there was a short time period there where AIW was really entertaining to watch. That UHA Nation AR Fox match, though, was on YouTube. I highly recommend people check that out if they have not seen it. 
And then we moved to PWG and a show top to bottom that have, if you have not seen, you need to do yourself a favor and check out. We're talking about Steen Wolf from October 22nd, 2011, uh, a six man tag opener with Candice LeRae, Chris Cadillac, who I really like. Mike, do you remember Chris Cadillac? Very vaguely. Like, I remember, like, he was, like, someone on those shows that, you know, you, at that era, as we've talked before, like, you get a lot more local people and was one of the people that was on there. I was like, okay, okay, like, he was okay. Like, he wasn't, like, getting over the way that, like, Brandon Gatson or Brandon Bottom was, but he was not, like, a bad person on the show. Like, I was a lot more okay about him being on the shows than B-Boy. You, just to say, for example. <laughs> Brother, absolutely. Chris Cadillac worked this show, the next show, and then the Wrestle Reunion show at the start of 2012 and then disappeared, which bummed me out because I really he was just an interesting guy who just did different moves. Uh, but it was Candace Cadillac and Famous B defeating Freddie Bravo, Peter Avalon, and Ray Rosas. TJP defeating Rocky Romero in a uh, New Japan Dojo tribute match. The Rockness Monsters defeated Brian Cage Taylor and Ryan Taylor, the Fightin' Taylor boys. Davey Richards defeats Willie Mack. I uh, really, really love this era of Willie Mack. I love that match. The Dynasty defeated Los Luchas. Ricochet defeats Chuck Taylor. And the two matches that really matter, the Young Bucks defeat Future Shock in their PWG debut. And in a ladder match for the PWG World title, El Generico defeats Kevin Steen. Incredible ladder match, like five-star ladder match. Remarkable stuff. It's it's one one of the best ones I've ever seen. Yeah, and might be one of the best indie ladder matches ever, I would argue. It's, I guess it's probably something worth looking into of just the history of the PWG ladder match, because between this and then, you know, what I think is a truly five-star ladder match, the three-mendous three ladder match with Future Shock, the Young Bucks, and the Super Smash Brothers, they seem to have gotten that match type more so than any other promotion that I can think of. Yeah, no, that that's it. It's interesting how PWG would pivot from this into the super indie, even though they were sorry showing sh- shades of it and they had storylines at this point rather than who what's the all star show we can make out of people who are available. But interesting stuff. And like they also, it also was a promotion that you brought Future Shock. They did a lot more Future Shock at that time than ROH did, which is always kind of befuddling in a way, which, which in retrospect, I mean. Both the guys have had excellent careers, but like that was a tag team that like of that time before they broke up, I was like, why isn't Ring of Honor doing more Future Shock? Why isn't Future Shock everywhere? But PWG would have it, so you get the PWG DVDs because they would have the better Future Shock matches than whatever you can find from Ring of Honor. Well, I think there's a direct link of PWG becoming what it became really through this show. I mean, this I mean, I got into PWG in mid-2012, and I knew somehow just knew instantly that Steen Wolf was like an all-time show. Like, I don't know how I heard that, but I just remember knowing that Steen Wolf was an important show because you have the two, the, the semi-main event and the main event, and then afterwards, Super Dragon comes out. He returns for the first time since, I think, 2006. I think he made one appearance at a DDT4 show in maybe 2008, but, you know, attacked the Young Bucks and made the partnership with Kevin Steen, so it would be Kevin Steen versus, or Kevin Steen and Super Dragon versus the Young Bucks on the next PWG show, which we'll talk about at some point. But there is a direct lineage between this show and what PWG would become. It's really an all-time great show. Yeah, and, like, this would start a stretch of his that would end pretty quickly, and then, weirdly enough, I've seen uh, Super Dragon's last match live, which is a wild thing. That was part of that BOLA 2015 weekend. Oh, my but God. That, 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 always... that, that weekend for him, it is such a shame it ended the way it did, because those matches are just unbelievable. 
just brutal matches but sadly we don't have a pwg show there's there's another good pwg podcast out there go check that one out but yeah no this is like such an interesting time in that promotion as they are now clearly veering a certain way and we'll be talking a lot about them in 2012 finally we bring ourselves to the present day november 12th 2011 not only is their dragon gate usa bushido code of the warrior that is not even the only show in this building. There's a CZW show in the same building and a Chikara show in the same state in downtown Philadelphia this same night. So, Mike, I'll read you the CZW card first. We can talk about it uh, ever so briefly, and then we can talk about the Chikara <laughs> show, which was much more noteworthy. But the, the GGUSA show let off the evening, and then we had a CZW show that followed that saw Uha Nation defeating Aaron McCormick, Greg Excellent defeating Mia Yim. That was a big feud at one point, the Greg Excellent Mia Yim feud. Uh, for whatever reason, it was a big feud for them. Yeah, Mia Yim and uh, Mia Yim and Adam Cole together. I did, I, I did like that pairing. If you have not seen the Kevin Steen show with Adam Cole, Kevin really interrogates that pairing because I, I feel like DJ Hyde put both Adam Cole and Mia Yim in a very uncomfortable position in that tandem. I, I've not seen that episode. That that's yeah. I'm going to go check that out sometime someday where I have insomnia and I just pull up the network because that's what I do if I can't sleep. And if it's not lo-fi beats, if the ambient music with rain help me go to sleep, I, I pull up a high spots network. It's one of the few like wrestling subscription services I keep because of the random shoots they have. And that's one that I've not listened to that I might have to go check out. That one is recorded at WrestleMania week in 2013. So we're talking about a, a, a literally a different universe at that point, but it is a very good interview. Other stuff on this car that pertains to Dragon Gate USA A.R. Fox defeated Ryan McBride in a CZW Junior Heavyweight title number one contenders match. There was a six-man tag with Blackout of Alex Colon, Ruckus, and Rich Swan defeating the runaways of Joe Gacy and Ryan Slater and Alex Payne. I did not know Rich Swan was ever affiliated with Blackout. And then, Mike, your semi-main event and your main event. Semi-main, a CZW world title match. Devin Moore versus Masada. And it goes to a no contest in 1101. Could you imagine a worse match? That's DJ. <laughs> well, That's luckily, DJ. <laughs> luckily, the main event a little bit better. CZW Junior Heavyweight Title Match: Sammy Callahan defeating Adam Cole to win the belt to headline Night of Infamy 10 Ultimatum. Mike, oh boy. That's an ultimatum, all right. Ultimatum for me never to watch that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. I uh, oh boy. Well, I'm I'm air punching that joke. I feel really proud of that one. That was good. No, that was you should you should be sure to pat yourself on the back. That was really solid. The, the good news, Mike, is there was a Chikara show that night at the Palmer Center. Chikara Cybernetico, the animated series that saw El Generico defeating Ophidian, Grizzly Redwood defeating Jigsaw 3.0. They knocked off the Bravado Brothers. Icarus defeated Steve Weiner. Fire Ant defeated Chuck Taylor. In a Tornado Cybernetico 16-man elimination match uh, with Hollow Wicked, Ultramantis Black, Green Ant, Dasher Hatfield, Sugar Dunkerton, The Young Bucks, and Sarah Del Rey defeating Eris Delirious, uh, Jacob Hammermeyer, Tim Donst, Tur- uh, is that Tursos, I believe, is the pronunciation Tursus. there? Thank you. You're Tursus. a little bit more well-versed in Chikara than I am. And uh, Kobold, Kodama, and uh, Oberian uh, in the 51-minute 50, Cybernetico match. Mike, are you going to Chikara or CZW if you're in Philly that night? I mean, 
I think it's obvious I'm going to go to Easton mm-hmm. to go watch this Chikara show. I mean, come on. Oh, like, also, like, I'm, I, I've i seen the show. It's been absolute years at this point. But, I mean, like, this was such a big time in Chikara we've talked about before. Like, we have now fully crossed over to where Chikara was more of a dominant promotion than P, uh, DG USA was at this point. Oh, and more very on much that next so. week? Absolutely. Yeah, we'll really get into that next week. But, you know, interesting show. I mean, the, the, there's stuff on there that's never hit for me out of Chikara. The Cyberneco matches usually are a lot of fun just because of how different the Cyberneco match was. And how, when they did good Cyberneco matches, they were very unique into themselves. A lot like a match that we talked about a couple weeks ago on the weekly update, the, the Dead or Alive slash just general Dragon Gate cage match. The Cyberneco match, at least from, from Chikara, was always something worth watching. Well, Mike, we're finally at a point in the show where I know how to pronounce all of the names that will come up from here on out, and that is Bushido Code of the Warrior 2011. I should note before we break down the card, there is one note from Gabe in the Newswire, September 23rd, in which he says, DGUSA is very proud of our homegrown talent roster. That roster will be put to the test on November 12th in Philadelphia. The theme of the night will be DGUSA homegrown talent versus Drangate veterans. This is already proven in the main event. Uh, when Chuck Taylor challenges DGUSA title holder, Gabe has a litany of typos here, uh, Chuck Taylor ch- Chuck Taylor challenges for the DGUSA title against Yamato. Now we have Sammy Callahan and, a- and Eric Cannon against Shima and Ricochet and a bunch of other singles matches. Mike, I am ready for Bushido Code of the Warrior 2011. So am I. So Bushido Code of the Warrior 2011 was from the Asylum Arena. Indeed. Right that, that time in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was the 5 o'clock start time. It was on WWN Live. I'm very disappointed, Case. We tried to figure this out pre-show, but we could not find it out here. No official attendance. The worked attendance, both on Cage Match and on the Dragon Gate website, is 726. They did note in the Observer Newsletter, however, that attendance was slightly up from the show that they had in New York, or they had in January. And you know what? I buy that. Like it does. It, it's not necessarily like a packed house, but it does feel a little bit more lively than the show they had United Weekend. Yeah, it's uh, a far cry from what it once was, but it looked better than it did in January. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, just just talking on a note, they never talked about this being homegrown versus Japan at all, or established at all during the show. Did you did did I miss out on something that Lenny said and and like this? Like I did not know that until you read that to me that this that Gabe had a summation for the show. No, I guess now that you mentioned that, I don't remember that coming up on commentary. It was Lenny Leonard and then kind of a rotating cast of wrestlers that joined him. And uh, yeah, you make a good point. That was not mentioned on commentary that I'm aware of. Yep. And then we open up the show with BJ Whitmer. He says that he will fight him across the building, even though he is not wrestling, because there was a dark match on the show. BJ Whitmer and Uha Nation defeating the scene of Caleb Conley and Scott Reed. BJ would be featured heavily on the show. Not much Uha whatsoever. I will be reserving my BJ Whitmer takes for the next episode. All right. So then we get into the open opener. It is a singles match of Masato Yoshino versus AR Fox. Masato Yoshino won in 10 minutes and 33 seconds with the Soul Naciente. And an interesting match that definitely set the tone for the night. Masato Yoshino took a lot from AR Fox. Like he was willing to go for it. And now I could tell definitely why Masato Yoshino was getting tired of going to America next year. Yes, we are very close to the point where Yoshino says, actually, I'm good. I'm going to stay in Japan and play baseball and buy cars and make money. 
I will say, AR Fox, you know, we saw him in a singles match against Japanese talent with Akira Tozawa back in June. And I noted in that match that it was it was a big match for Fox to prove himself, but it was really the culmination of Akira Tozawa's excursion. It's actually his last match of his excursion, where Tozawa takes a very young, very green wrestler and produces a legitimately great match out of him. Here, it's a few months later, Fox has been to Japan, and while this match is nowhere near as good as the Tozawa match, AR Fox looked so much more confident as a wrestler that I really think he stood toe-to-toe in the same ring as Yoshino very well. Yeah, no, this was a match that was more about AR Fox than it was Yoshino. Yoshino definitely, like, was comfortable with it, but really this was about AR Fox kind of stepping forward. And even though he got the loss and was caught with the Sol Naciente, for a good solid eight minutes of this 10 minutes and 33 minutes, it was him on offense, and then Yoshino finding his point, locking in the Sol Naciente and getting out of there. I went three and a quarter stars. I like this. I don't think this is nearly as good as some of the other Fox challenge matches, but I feel like that this was a decent opener and a good way to kind of start the show. Mike, I went three and a quarter stars as well, and I should let the listeners know this match is also free on YouTube thanks to PW Ponderings. Uh, You can watch the opener of this show for free on YouTube. It's worth watching. If you're someone who's who's getting into Dragon Gate for the first time, it's worth watching Yoshino in his prime. Like, he is something else, and him and Air Fox, pretty good chemistry there. Just was just like a solid opener. Then, we should note at this time that BJ Whitmer was on commentary at this point. It was just kind of like, hey, these guys are outstanding. Just kind of just very, very just not very good at commentary. He was blind on this. W- Whitmer kind of talked like a guy who had never seen Dragon Gate before. <laughs> it was actually, it was almost like, like, I think Whitmer genuinely enjoyed watching these matches he seemed to get a real kick out of it but his verbiage is very similar similar to when jr calls a match that he doesn't like and he's talking about how young and fast and exciting these guys are now jr does it and he kind of talks like he's gritting through his teeth and going over the basic talking points of what a high-flying match typically is i think whitmer was saying the same thing but he actually just enjoyed it yeah no he just it which is well considering that bj whitmer was in ring of honor when the dragon gate guys were around so it's this is not the first masato yoshino match he's seen unless he like intentionally avoided watching dragon gate matches on those shows yeah very much so then as is a way that gabe likes to do so time sometimes this was a show that especially considering that there was a show coming on in the arena after this and had to reset almost everything happened out in front of the camera and one match bled to another Pretty much up until the BB Hulk Johnny Gargano match. That was really kind of how that went there. Spike Mohicans came out as Yoshino celebrated. Ricochet talked about how tomorrow it is Shima versus Yoshino. He wants him to think of this, and then Spike Mohicans lay him out. Pac makes the save, and then Ricochet brings out Brody Lee, and that pulls out BJ Whitmer from this uh, from the commentary boot. And then we had Pac versus Brody Lee as the next match. Pack got the win, and they made a big point of the fact that this is only the second singles match that Brody Lee has lost in Dragon Gate USA with the British Airways in 2 minutes and 22 seconds. And this was one of my favorite matches on the show, and this is when I, I, I did do a tweet while I was watching the show, and this would have been a couple of weeks after, before this, before this episode's release. Boy, Brody Lee is just someone that he is just as good, if not just like, like, in 2011, Brody Lee was already awesome. And now we see him in 2020, still awesome. And it's just, like, 
might be the biggest indictment of WWE squandering talent like Brody Lee, because I love this match. This was only 10 minutes and 22 seconds, and I had an absolute blast. If I were to make a Desert Island disc of not necessarily the best matches I've ever seen, but my favorite matches, this is a first ballot inclusion. I This is one of my favorite matches really ever. There, there's two specifically. There's this match, and then there's an Austin Aries versus Matt Seidel match, which is actually from this arena uh, Ring of Honor show Arena Warfare in 2006. That when I just like, okay, I think I just love those matches more than anybody else. I I really just th- those are that's my kind of wrestling. And I have spoken publicly about this Pac versus Brody Lee match a lot. How much I love it. How I really want to see the modern day incarnation of it. I should note a few months back I was tweeting about this match before we started doing this series. Maybe right around the time we started, actually, I tweeted about just how good this was. Uh, Rob Naylor replied to me and said, This match was a factor in each getting brought into FCW. It was on the tape I sent into Tampa. I was just glad to get a copy of the match at the time, because uh, it's not like DGUSA was necessarily flying off the shelves. But no, this is this is a four-star match. I don't care if I'm the high man on it. This is what professional wrestling should be. It's Pac, who we've just had a revelation. We like we loved Pac before this series. We love Pac even more now. And Brody Lee, who, you know, I've said it for the past five episodes. I, I don't know how he's not in the Freedom Gate con- contention at this point. Like, Brody Lee is so good on these shows and is wasted wrestling BJ Whitmer, who again, I like BJ, but not enough to wrestle Brody Lee at this point in time. He's just doing so much nonsense. It's a shame because when Brody Lee just straight up wrestles, he's as good as they come. Yeah, and I was three and three quarters, so I was not far off you from me on this. But this match was just really kind of special. Like, and it's not just like these two guys. So Tazawa was already out there with uh, Brody Lee, and he was getting involved in this, and a rare piece of great camera work and direction on the indies where where uh, you, he did a couple times but then he was like set up against like the center of the ring right against a hard cam and then pack just does like an incredible baseball slide that you that tozawa just wipes out for and it was just like such like a pleasing moment of like okay the baby face is starting to make his comeback and that's when he really started making the comeback here and it's just something that how impressive this all is how impressive pack is like pack's rebound german is one of the coolest moves in the in the company at the time and it's not like flashy or flying it's just the way that he gets over like the effort in this and the guys who take it always make it look awesome it's just like a really really like great package here and it just was like something that like this is a match where regardless of promotion like this you put like this 10 minute match here uh, up for someone and it's such a satisfying experience watching this match and I totally understand why this would be a desert island match for you. There's a moment where Brody hits the half Nelson suplex on Pac. Pac takes a great bump onto his stomach, uh, but no sells it, charges back at Brody Lee, and Brody Lee hits the truck stop. And it is it is perfectly done. It is unbelievable. God, I love these two. They're so good. They're yeah. so good. Yeah, it was just an incredible match. Definitely one of those matches that does not get the praise it deserves. Like I said, it was a three and three quarters match, but it really is one of those three and three quarters matches that the uh, sum of it is greater than its parts and worth going out of your way to watch. Yeah, it's uh, it's four stars for me. It is a real highlight 
on this show and in the promotion as a whole. I mean, even to to sum it down into Dragon Gate USA, I mean, if I'm making a 10 best matches of the promotion list, look, there's probably a six-man tag or a tag that's better than this, but I can't tell the story of Dragon Gate USA without including this match. Absolutely. And then as things were flowing into each other, we had we already had Tozawa out there. Here comes Rich Swan. It's Rich Swan's beatboxing Axle F. This is something that I would include on it just because it's so ridiculous in the middle of the show. You have him like beatboxing and Johnny Gargano's with him and he just goes straight into Axle F, which was really funny. And then we got another rap battle. We got Good Song Tozawa once again. The uh, the Absolute Boy is back and he's singing his his greatest hits and then partway through uh, Rich Swan kicks him in the face and that leads us to Akira Tozawa and Rich Swan. Rich Swan gets the big upset on Akira Tozawa with a crucifix hold in 9 minutes and 39 seconds. Michael, we got good singing Tozawa, and we got good match Tozawa. And it's actually, it's not even fair to say. We got good match Tozawa, and we got great match Rich Swan. This is the best Rich Swan performance there has been to this point in Dragon Gate USA. You know, I think the John Davis match might be better. Which show was that on? This. Was that Chicago? That was Chicago. That was good. I I don't know. I love I Swan is another one where. You know, I think when we tell the story of this era of professional wrestling, we're going to look back and I think Brody Lee is going to be a guy that people, you know, in whatever the the conversational medium is in 2035, 2040, people are going to look back at footage from this era and wonder why Brody Lee wasn't a, a 10-time world heavyweight champion. I think the same, to a lesser extent, can be said for Rich Swan. and granted, uh, there's been injuries and, and there are personal issues that occurred at points in time, but Swan has always been a guy that has been under-pushed. I mean, really, up until his final days in Dragon Gate Japan, when they started to look at him as a Brave Gate challenger and a, and a Triangle Gate champion, that's when it felt like Rich Swan was really being pushed to his potential. But here, we've talked about it since he showed up. Gabe just does not seem to get Rich Swan. He doesn't know how to use him. We're about to hit a point in the series where Gabe wants to stop booking Rich Swan. And meanwhile, he's having matches like this with Akira Tozawa. And I know it's 2011 Akira Tozawa. Mike, we could step in the ring with him and have a great match at, the, at this point in time with him. But this is a match driven by Rich Swan, driven by his charisma, driven by his selling. It is just a phenomenal display of professional wrestling. Yeah, and I think like the thing that kind of takes this match down with, for me is the crowd was so behind Tozawa this time. It, it's virtually impossible for Tozawa to be a heel, and and the byproduct of that is they weren't getting under they weren't getting behind underdog Rich Swan. So when the crucifix pin happened, there was a lot of legitimate shock. It was like, oh, he actually won, and then they popped for it, and it was something that I thought was kind of like interesting that like putting Rich Swan at this level, but also at the same time, not really caring for Rich Swan, but still booking him, having someone who's by far the most popular person in the promotion, like trying to get this person over. And it just was one of those things that this is a very competently done match. I went three and a quarter stars on it. It's just something that like also with the flowing cards, you don't get a chance to breathe this in. The fact that Akira Tozawa, who soon after the show would be open the Twin Gate champion, lost to Rich Swan. It's the biggest one of Rich Swan's career, but we don't really have that because we go straight into the next match, and I feel like that loses some of the effect that it's great how the show is. The show is like two hours closely on the dot, but you lose like a little bit of the gravitas by going match into the next match into the next match, and I feel like that hurts the experience of this match. 
that is true. That is something that I had not thought about until you just brought it up. That that is true. We don't get that moment of Swan standing in front of the Asylum Arena where he cut his teeth in CZW, where he debuted for Drangate USA, and where he finally gets that big moment. We don't get that, which is a real bummer because it seemed like if there was one consistency with Gabe when it came to booking Rich Swan, it was putting him over in Philly because if you remember from the January show, he beats Jimmy right. Jacobs in a singles match in this building. By the way, doesn't it feel like it's been about 10 years since we've talked about Jimmy Jacobs and Drangate USA? Once he left, he was out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, it, it, it's it's one of those things that also this is the most productive and longest year in Dragon Gate USA's whole tenure. So maybe it is the fact that we're doing this right now in the day and age of 2020. But we're also looking back at these these shows. And we're like, that show in January feels like it was forever ago. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, oh my god. But it's it's my favorite Swan performance to date. I thought he was brilliant in this match, and I went three and three quarters with it. Oh, I I totally understand you coming away with that. It, it was just one of those things. And maybe it's just me nitpicking going like, you've beat my favorite wrestler of all time. And I want <laughs> you to like be able to soak it in, but nope, you can't have that. Like maybe that's my issue with this. And it's not, not anything against the match. It's just circumstances, you know, it's just how things were laid out with this. And that went straight into the next match, which was BB Hulk versus Johnny Gargano. Hulk comes out, then Gargano's out. And then I have my notes that I feel like this kind of undercut the Swans upset. Didn't let re breathe however this match was the longest match uh before the title matches on these shows uh johnny gargano defeats uh bb hulk in 12 minutes and 19 seconds with the gargano escape and i went four flat on this match i thought that this was one of like i thought like this was such a big moment for what would happen on the next show in new york city the fact that he tapped out bb hulk the person who was in kobe world's main event just three months prior like this was like a big moment here and i i really enjoyed this match so I think the finish of this match was great. I think the work in this match was great. I just didn't necessarily think it was a great match. I like what they did with Hulk. Really, I mean, he really beat up Johnny Gargano in this match. Because yeah. we're, in, we're in 2011, kicks are flying, uh, death precision era BB Hulk, and he really beats up Johnny Gargano. And for Gargano to come back the way he did, it made him look terrific. I mean, this is the type of thing that he needed going into his title match. I'm still annoyed he lost to Akira Tozawa in Chicago. That was a really dumb booking decision <laughs> that just Nuts. derailed it derailed so much of Gargano's process. It's really frustrating to look back on because if you remove the Tozawa match, he's a guy who submitted Shima, submitted Ares, beat Doi, and what did he do uh in Revere the night before? What was the Gargano match? It was, the, it was the match. tag match where I didn't like the finish. So, it, it, yes, after the yeah. Tozawa match and after the tag match, he really needed this match, and I thought he delivered. I didn't like it as much as the prior two matches. I went three and a half with it, but I also recognize it was really well executed. No, no. It, it's something where I feel like that this match itself maybe salvaged that weird loss in a lot of ways just because this is BB Hulk, Dark Side Hulk, perhaps at some of his best, I would say. Okay, so I think that's fair to say. Like, this is like, if you want to understand how BB Hulk was in 2011, like, as previously as a heel and you're coming into the promotion now, this is a match worth going out of way to see because he's precision point. He's brutal. Brody Lee on commentary. What can't Brody Lee do? He was great as a color commentator with this, talking about how just how brutal of a match this is and how BB Hulk is just someone that is now this absolute monster and th this is like 
for how overwhelming and how everything was like flowing together, it was kind of special. The one thing I'll say, it is the longest match in like this streak of matches. But even at like twelve minutes, I feel like this match like was post peak when they hit the finish. Like you, you take two minutes off this match, and maybe you think this is a four star match as well. Mike, do you know what Brody Lee can't do? What can't Brody Lee do? Can't do a southern accent. Yeah, he does try to do a southern accent, and it's not very good. Well, I was referring to Vince McMahon saying this guy can't even do a southern accent. What are we supposed to do with him? Which is real feedback oh, Brody right. Lee got. Yes. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. I, you see, I'm right now thinking of of Mr. Brody Lee 2020. I'm thinking about the TNT champion, one of the, the best big man in wrestling right now. I'm not even thinking about his dark days, not even a year ago. What a wow. waste. A, a, a near seven foot tall guy that works the way he does, that talks the way he does. And your hangup is that he can't do a Southern accent. What a, what a, what an abomination of a company. You send him to an acting class. You sent Cody Rhodes to an acting class. Or, you or, send him to an or acting just class. don't have him do a Southern accent. <laughs> just don't have him do it. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the obvious answer. <laughs> that, that, that's the case. That's fair. That's entirely fair. It seems weird that we're hung up on the accent part of this and whether he can or can't do it and not whether he should or shouldn't. That is my frustration. Yeah, that's a real Vince mindset of me. I apologize, everyone. I'll, I'll try to be better in the future about not thinking Vince McMahon ideas were terrible or just like outright terrible like they are because that's just outright terrible. Which, to set you up once again, to speak of terrible, uh, not the BJ Whitmer promo, which he put over Pac, and he said that he has an eye on him for the rest of the night. No, uh, the Sabu versus Pinky Sanchez match that came after BB Hulk versus Johnny Gargano. We do have some backstage stuff. We have new WWN Live thing. Actually, yes. I have new footage. Good yes, for you, new, Gabe. new footage. I noticed that. Uprising promo, five months behind, but it's now available. Then we have the South Philly... Street Fight Sabu versus Pinky Sanchez Sabu, one with a Cobra Clutch, and nine minutes and two seconds. And it's just real house of hardcore hours here. Just absolute disaster in match. I want one and three quarters on this match. In case you know how hard it is for me to go blow two stars on a professional wrestling match that happens in a Dragon System promotion. Like, this match is just terrible. There's a moment where Pinky Sanchez is throwing a chair at the back of Sabu and to say that Sabu Sabu no sold it would be inaccurate. Sabu just looked annoyed that Pinky Sanchez was throwing chairs at him. Like it's the most uncomfortable thing I've ever seen. Where Sabu just looks like he doesn't want to be in the ring. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I after after Chicago and after Milwaukee, and I understand wanting to book Sabu in the ECW arena, but like I said a few weeks ago. There has to be another ECW guy that you can book for this weekend. After Milwaukee, the first... Mike, we got two Sabu versus Pinky Sanchez singles matches. After the first one, I would not put that man on my show. After this one, I would be embarrassed to have my name on the same show as this match. I want to star in a quarter. The one thing maybe was, I was really enjoying Brody Lee saying, like, what are these chair throws? This is nothing. And then counting up, like, Sabu going, like, Sabu's 9 for 9 of chair throws. He's now 10 for 10. Like, I thought that was genuinely funny, but this match was atrocious. No part of being in this promotion. And now you get, like, why, why like, when DUF was around when they first brought in here, why I did a big groan. Well, okay, well, I, well I'll save my DUF takes for the end of the podcast. I, I, I will say... 
I don't think I hated this as much as Homicide versus Rich Swan because I think there was more on the line in the Rich Swan match. The stakes were a little oh, sure. higher. But yeah. in terms of work rate, this is the worst thing we've seen so far. Absolutely. And then we had DUF come out, beat down. Air Fox comes for the save and is beat down as well. Then someone here to establish dominance. Someone here just to clear house. John Davis is out here. He establishes dominance by throwing Piggy said. Sanchez a good solid 15 feet out of the ring and up the entranceway. We here stand John Davis. John Davis is the man. John Davis is Bay. Uh, this spot with him throwing Pinky Sanchez like a lawn dart is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And John Davis did it in jeans, and I don't know why that makes it cooler, but it makes it 100 times cooler. This is the, like, I forgot this happened, and I've seen this show a few different times. I love this show. The fact that John Davis throwing Pinky Sanchez in the air like a football was not in every promo package ever in Dragon Gate USA and Evolve even after this company died blows my mind. This is, I mean, this is ECW opening video package fodder. It was such a missed opportunity to not just show John Davis launching this man into the sun every single time they had a chance. Or a chance. Uh, I was looking at my notes. I have a note about chance in just a second. But every time they had a chance to throw to show John Davis throwing Peaky Sanchez, they should have. So right now I'm looking at John Davis's Twitter account, and he talks about doing stuff during quarantine. And people are making a press of his T-shirt that perfectly encapsulates John Davis's whole entire career. John Davis does mean things. He's a mean man. I would not want to mess with him. Did not want to mess with him. Ah, oh, God. I love John Davis now. Did not think that was going to be my response almost 30 episodes in this series that now I believe in establishing dominance. I believe that John Davis might be up there with this as one of the best like people that weren't brought into Japan. Like, God. Imagine John Davis versus Misaki Mochizuki in Corken Hall. Should have happened. Should have happened. It's a real shame we didn't get that. I think we can universally agree this John Davis segment worked. What I'm curious about, Mike is what followed, because I really have no idea what you thought of this video package. Yeah, and this if there's anything that like dates this show other than having <laughs> Sabu on this and Shima and a Dragon Gate thing, this segment did. So this was a hype video for Chuck Taylor's Open the Free Gate title shot, and it's Chuck walking amongst uh, Occupy Philly, talks about the first show, talks about the DG class system, a lot of Occupy language, talks about how Ronan was losing his their way. That Rich Swan, he doesn't even know where to be a part of it. Jo, uh, made a big point about John Johnny Gargano growing up, and it was really long, but I thought it was kind of effective. It's just is such a weird thing, like in 2020, especially like right now, seeing Occupy being used as something, and Occupy being used as something that is like a throwaway title defense <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, not to go political here but if you like want to do like a capsulation of whatever sense of a left movement we have in the united states i think that one of the big like nucleuses of it was things coming out of the occupy movement so like having this year i'm like oh wow yeah no occupy that was a big thing and it was something that was kind of dear to me in a lot of ways and like seeing like chuck taylor have an ultraman is black uh cross uh black flag t-shirt on and like yeah yeah ultraman is black one of the all-time great merch people by the way but uh, just like an interesting thing, and it's very much dated, but also at the same time, it's like makes sense of this. And the whole thing of like Chuck Taylor, like being like the person, like 
fighting from under beneath, like trying to fight against like how much Shima hates them. The fact that there were separate locker rooms for Dragon Gate native talent and all the Americans. And just like very kind of like on the nose in a way that this promotion doesn't often get. And I don't remember there was much follow up on, on that. You have Chuck Taylor, the hero of the proletariat. So you've got another podcast host that can talk to you about the Occupy Wall Street movement. It's not my jurisdiction. I remember this happening. I still do not know much about it. It was, uh, I remember my first social uprising that I was attached to, which was Ferguson. Uh, and I, I don't have a ton of knowledge of Occupy Wall Street. I know for sure, though, when Chuck Taylor is not goofing around, Chuck Taylor is one hell of a promo. And I still think for as as much as I've enjoyed Best Friends in AEW, I really think there's an avenue for one serious Chuck Taylor run in which he can really accomplish something. Because Chuck Taylor's a smart guy. I mean, Chuck Taylor is funny, not for a wrestler. Chuck Taylor is actually funny and actually creative. And I look at him as someone that is, you know, would be successful outside of wrestling if he wasn't in wrestling. I really enjoyed this promo. I thought the, you know, him doing the promo where he did it next to the tents of Occupy Philly was so strange. I, I guess more power to Gabe if it was his idea for talking Chuck Taylor into doing these promos there. It was a really strange visual, but the overall presentation of the promo was done incredibly well. Yeah, it, it, it's like something that's very much at the times and it makes perfect sense. You're like, oh yeah, Occupy, that's something that happened when I was a kid. And I'm like, no, I remember like definitely like getting it. I, I did not do much of like involvement with it, but I definitely know like that is like a big facet of my life. And the fact that it's like brought into like a wrestling angle in, in an era that before really political angles happened in wrestling. And the fact that I don't believe that this is followed up whatsoever is somewhat bizarre. You know, like I don't think this, I don't think like the underclass proletariat 99% Chuck Taylor is ever really a thing that happens and from what I'm remembering off the top of my head and, and not to get too ahead of ourselves Chuck Taylor turns full on heel within the next four months that is true I, I forgot I forgot that he was turning that is something that happens and it, it is largely built off of this match with Yamato opened the Freedom Gate title defense for Yamato in a match that Mike I don't know about you I really love this match yeah I really enjoyed this too like this is not a show that for me, had like match of the year contenders, but I'm looking at my at my notebook right now. Two four star matches, two three and three quarter star matches, two three and one quarter. I mean, the only bad match on the show was the Pinky Sanchez match, in my opinion. And this one was another really strong one here. It was Yamato making a open the Freedom Gate title defense. This would be his sixth title defense against Chuck Taylor. He would defeat him with a crossbone vanguard, a move that you know. Definitely, this is 2011 Yamato, where the crossbone Vanguard ended matches in 17 minutes and 47 seconds, which, should, should I get into the, the match finish before we get back and talk about the bulk of the match itself? Because the match finish is probably, like we talked about, Chuck Taylor's heel turn here. This is the start of it all. No, let's, talk, joint, about, let's talk about the finish now. So, the finish is that after about 15 minutes of the match, maybe even 16 minutes of the match, pretty back and forth, but Chuck Taylor is sticking in there with Yamato. Like, it's not like he's getting run over by Yamato. He's giving everything he has, and then he hits an Omega driver and gets a visual three count. But the problem is is that right outside the referee's range of vision, Yamato has his foot on the ropes. They ring the bell. They award the title to Chuck Taylor. And then the thing, the thing is that Yamato does not move. He keeps his foot on the ropes the entire time. 
the referee, which I think is Mike Posey or no or Keener, Mike Keener, uh, came comes over, like sees this and goes to Johnny Gargano and he says, his foot's on the rope. This happened before I, the bell rang. This happened before three. And then they really milked it for a minute because, and Lenny did a great job of saying this is like, you know, no matter and actually they had Rich Swan on color for this thing. Like, you know, no matter what, this is going to be a big thing. And Johnny was like, yeah, his foot was on the ropes. And then Rich Swan kind of was like, God, this is going to be a long night now. This is going to be an unfun night now. And they restarted the match. And then pretty soon right after, a real brutal Galleria going right into the crossbone vanguard for the tap out. I love this match. This is this is a classic world title match. I mean, the structure of it is slow and deliberate. I, there's some sort of a dusty finish here. It, Swan being on commentary is also a, another really strong element of this match because Swan is involved in this story of Ronan and Junction 3 and Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor. There's a lot of opposing elements here, and I just wonder if Drangit USA had a better production par- department. I, I don't know what they need to do to get this story across stronger because... I've loved all of this Swan stuff since he joined Junction 3 and the Dissension with Ronan, but I didn't remember any of it going into this rewatch. Like, it's not stuff that stood out to me, and it's a real bummer because I think it's a, a great story that's being told, and then you've got the finish with Good Guy John being honest and, and Taylor's pissed, and it's... I, I mean, I'm only three and three quarters of the match. I, I'm not going to put it on the spreadsheet, but I love yeah. this. It is a just really, really top level professional wrestling. You, you know how like for like the last like month or so of us doing the show, I've been like opening questioning like, is this the right thing for Ronan right now? Is this the right thing for Ronan? After like watching this match and the Rich Swan, who's not a strong promo guy, he never has been, but like he was very, he did a very solid and complimentary job getting over the main storyline here in such an effective manner that my worries about Ronan over WrestleMania week can stay intact, but the way that Gabe is blowing this off is so satisfying because for a long time it was always like Taylor and Gargano being like the factors here but now like the idea of having like Swan going like yeah no I think everything's okay like I'm doing this thing in Japan but I'm still a part of Ronin I still view this as a thing and then like this awkward silence after the match and him going like oh this I don't know how things are going to go here and like showing like real doubt was really effective here and probably I think that's that's remarkable is how this is tying into the next week's show and the Johnny Gargano title match, like this is all very complimentary in a way that I, maybe my memory of this wasn't so fuzzy about this, but watching it play out now on a weekly basis this is incredibly effective storytelling. I love it. I love this angle. I, I did not remember this, like I said, going into this rewatch, but it's, it's a layer of storytelling that I think a lot of people think Gabe lost after Ring of Honor. And I think for the most part, they're right. It's not that Gabe didn't tell good stories, but they certainly weren't as intricate as they once were, uh, you know, at peak Ring of Honor days. I don't know, this Ronin Junction 3 stuff is really good, and it just doesn't, it, it didn't seem to get over in the way that I thought it would, and again, I put a lot of that on, you know, live technical difficulties, poor sound, and not reaffirming a lot of this in video packages or news wires. I think it's a real shame, because I think it's a really good angle. Yeah, I thought that it was really remarkable. It's worth saying, uh, we did not, uh, really touch on this that they said that the pay-per-view was perfect and except for two minutes of Philadelphia when someone tripped over a power cord and they were down for two minutes but knew about it and had Sammy Callahan cut a promo so that no one missed any part of the matches so this was not a show that had big internet issues here and they said that the internet the iPay-per-view numbers were a little down in Philadelphia because also there was a TNA show 
this night. We didn't talk about this earlier because it's TNA and doesn't really apply here, but this was a busy night here, and I feel like this is something that was really important going in here. And then post-match, Chuck Taylor steals the belt and runs off, and it's just Lenny and Rich were like, this is real awkward. We're sitting through this. We're sitting through this like dissolution, and especially having someone on commentary and having to be on commentary, having to deal with this was, I thought, was another like interesting point here, and that led to the main event, the Open the United Gate title match where the Blood Warriors team of the Spike Mohicans, Shima and Ricochet, defeated the DUF team of Eric Cannon and Sammy Callahan when Ricochet hit the 630 splash on Sammy, on Eric Cannon in 17 minutes and 56 seconds. And I didn't note, like, there was, like, a weird thing in the beginning where, like, Callahan cuts a promo where it's like, speak English, you're in America. And it's like, that's xenophobic and awkward, but... And that's what he went with to buy time, by the way. Well, okay, well, I, I'm glad you had the note about filling time because, I mean, look, it's a Sam McCallahan promo. It's never going to be great. But that promo in particular, I have in my notes, it feels like pure filler. And for that to be what it was, I'm certainly not excusing his remarks, but it makes much more sense. Because at this point, I think Callahan's a pretty decent promo, but his in-ring deal here just did not deliver. Yeah, so, like, it, it was kind of like a mess of a pre-show match that like kind of rolled into a match itself. BJ Whitmer runs in and clears out uh, Brody Lee because Brody Lee interferes. I know you've been waiting to talk about BJ Whitmer for a while, so take it away. Well, a majority of my BJ Whitmer thoughts will actually come next week. I will say the Brody Lee interference into the, the BJ Whitmer save I actually thought was super well done. It's it's the next okay. show. It's the next show that I will have some issues, not even with BJ Whitmer, just I will have issues with the existence of BJ Whitmer. Yeah, and, like, my issue about this match, and it's not that, like, it's a failing of the wrestlers. This is just such a mismatch in styles and a mismatch in personalities that knowing what we know about Shima, having to get in the ring with someone like Eric Cannon and and, and really Sammy Callahan who's just spitting, pouring beer everywhere, hitting hard, that's just going to piss him off. I feel like what we don't know Shima, but I feel like we know enough about Shima that that would piss him off. Like, I think that's fair to say. Like, he's a hothead about stuff like that. And then just kind of was like a style mismatch that's just like, okay, Ricochet at this point is not someone who's going to lay in strikes here. Shima's going to lay in strikes, but it's mainly going to be about, you asshole, you did this, you're disrespecting me, I'm going to fire back at you for this. And, and like, develop like this interesting mix match that I feel like there's like a lot of contempt here, but it's like very awkwardly funny in a way. And also, in a way, it's like, this is not a match that should have happened. <laughs> like, DUF and then should not have had this match, right? So, I think I've always championed this match. I was curious to see what you were going to think of it. I, Mike, oh, I, I, I really like this match. Oh, oh, no, I say all this, but like I find, like, this is a match that shouldn't happen, but the Styles mismatch made it very interesting to me. Okay, okay, so I, I completely... I apologize, I compl- so no, 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 I, I completely agree with that, then. The Styles mismatch makes it incredibly interesting, and I think as a result, it produced a really good match. I, I think, especially after the Brody Lee spot, which it kind of seemed like, not that they were filling time to get to the Brody stuff, but once that happened, it seemed like all lanes were clear and they could really go all out, and while I completely co-signed the idea that Shima probably hated being in the ring with Sammy Callahan, I also think that Shima and Sammy Callahan have excellent chemistry together. They have the tag match here, and then they have a singles match uh, a, a year from now, Freedom Fight 2012. I remember watching that at least once and really liking that match. We'll see how it how it stands when we get to it, but... Uh, this the Sammy and Shima stuff in particular, 
I think they, you know, while the styles clash, and I think especially if you look at Ricochet with the DUF, it's not a good fit, but I think Sammy and Shima actually work really well together. They have offense that complements each other's strengths. They both, I think, come at wrestling, although they come at it from different angles themselves. In the big picture, Sammy and Shima, I think, come at wrestling from a different angle than most people. And I thought it really played into this match. I, I love this match just because you're right. If you look at this match on paper, Sammy Callahan and Eric Cannon versus Shima and Ricochet, like that just, it doesn't make sense. This match doesn't even really fit the promotion at the time. Like it, it would have made more sense to see uh, Gargano and Swan in this, in this match or AR Fox and Pac challenge them, whatever, whatever. But I, I don't know. I went four and a quarter. I love this match. You see, I say all the things about mismatches, and you hit the nail on the head. Like that's what made this match. Like I, I maybe sounded a little bit more down about this match. This, this is a no pick match. I went four flat on. That's awesome. I, I'm glad we're on the same page there. It, it, it's one of those things that like this is a match that shouldn't have happened, and that's why I find it very fascinating. <laughs> and, and like it's a real testament to kind of like Ricochet's kind of the glue of this match, you know, because we when you have like those personalities there, and like Eric Cannon, he's always solid. You know, Eric Cannon is always great in these roles. But it's also something where, like, where you're like doing this, and you're like, this is something that really shouldn't be happening. You know, this is like a match that, like, if I'm booking a promotion, I'm not putting these two tag teams against each other, and they produce a very remarkable and interesting match. And I think that's why, like, this show, this might be my favorite show that we've done over like this last half of 2011, just because there's a lot of stuff that flows in together. Again, two hours, and it had a lot of stuff that, like, you would not think would work or should not happen, but end up being really interesting and this is like an excellent like pre-show to what's the last show of dg usa's 2011 is the next day and a real changing of the guard at that and to this point it's my favorite show of 2011 you know what gosh i'm i'm, I'm flipping through the notebooks i might leave in the, the noise of me flipping through the notebooks not but all right definitely better than all right, so we had United Philadelphia. We had United at New York City first. That show was not very good. It did have Die Fly versus Taylor Gargano. Uh, I I really match. like New York City. I think New York City and Philly of the United yeah. Weekend are both really really strong shows. And I just I'll 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 I, I cut you off. I'll I'll give I'll let you finish in just no, a no second. Worries. But it's probably I mean United Philly for me. Southern Gate is truly a great show. Uh, there's 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 too many frustrating things on Mercury Rising, and on Open the Ultimate Gate. There were matches that were better than anything on this show, but that uh, the the booking on those shows was too annoying to get past. There's a lot of Rebby Sky. There's the frustration with Moxley leaving and and using him poorly. The Northeast Triple Shot. There's nothing as good as this show or the United uh, New York City right. and Philly shows there. The Midwest Triple Shot is good. I like Chasing the Dragon. I like Untouchable, and I like Way of the Ronin, but they're not as good as this show. So I think, you know, and this will obviously change next week after we talk about Freedom Fight, which is really <laughs> strong, but I'm looking at my power rankings of Bushido, United New York, and United Philly in some sort of order there. Yeah, I think United Philly is the best show of the year still to this point, but this is definitely up there, and it's definitely like a pleasant watch, and especially if you excise... That, like, if you only have, like, two minutes of that Sammy, or not Sammy, that Pinky Sanchez and Sabu match, then, I mean, I'm like, okay, that's an awesome thing, and then I don't have a match here that's below three and a quarter stars, you know? Like, then then I'm like, all right, this is an all-time show. And then it would have been very interesting there. Uh, 
after that, we have post-match that this was too easy and claimed that Shima will beat Yoshino. And then Ricochet says he'll beat Pac. Shima then has a moment where he grabs a microphone. He calls someone in a Junction 3 shirt a homophobic slur, kind of. I missed that. Of. I I can't comment on that. I did not catch that. Yeah, yeah. He says unkind things. I'll put it that way. He says <laughs> unkind things that, you know, it's Shima. Like, just, it was just, there was a lot of, like, moments where microphones were like, guys, in 2020, you can't say stuff like that. 2011, you know? Mike, it was a different time, man. And it was Philly. Anything goes in Philly. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he then drops into Spanish and Japanese at the same time. And he, he, he ends the promo on the up note. He knows enough about the NFL to say that the Eagles suck and that, the, and that he's a Giants fan. And that takes us to black. And that's it for uh, Bushido 2011, Code of the Warrior. And that's when we say farewell to the ECW arena or New Albany arena or just the arena. Or the Asylum arena. Or the Asylum Maria. I named all the other ones, but not the correct one to end out there. Real fail. Well, we do have a tribute to the arena, a show that we'll discuss in a few weeks. We, Mike, we are yes, not, we we are not yes, we watching will. that show. We're Case. not reviewing let's, let's, it. Case, come on. <laughs> that show is so bad. We're going to do, we're going to read it. There's probably a, a Larry Zonka review that we're going to read on the show. We're not watching the show, but Mike, what we are going to watch is freedom fight. 2011 Dragon USA closes their busiest year in history with the following card. BJ Whitmer versus Brody Lee, the scene versus Uha nation and John silver. We see Ronan of Chuck Taylor and Rich Swan versus the blood warriors of Akira Tozawa and BB Hulk Shima versus Masao Yoshino. Pac versus Ricochet, and open the Freedom Gate title match between Yamato and Johnny Gargano, and Mike, your main event, Freedom Fight 2011, Extreme Warfare six-man tag, the DUF, Eric Cannon, Pinky Sanchez, and Sammy Callahan versus A.R. Fox, Sabu, and established dominance, John Davis. I did not realize that the open the Freedom Gate title match was not the main event. Oh, it is not the main event, my friend. All right, like there's a lot of the show other than like I remember this six where yeah now yeah no fuck that that yeah yeah okay <laughs> but like Uha versus the scene uh Taylor and Swan versus Hulk and Tozawa I remember last week me saying yeah you know Chuck Taylor and Rich Swan had good chemistry they didn't tag team together I get my wishes them against one of my favorite tag teams in Drag Gate history and then of course those three big singles matches it's good. it's an interesting way and a fitting way for Dragon Gate to and it's busiest year ever in 2011 and you know for us to end this one chapter of the promotion as after after the show there'll be only 22 dragon gate usa shows remaining uh freedom fight 2011 is one of my favorite shows in this company's history i love bushido and i love freedom fight i'm really looking forward to sitting down and rewatching this show for uh oh god i'm I gonna have this on dvd so this is probably the eighth or ninth time i've seen the show I mean, I know I've seen the Open the Freedom Gate match six or seven times, so I'm really looking forward to that as well. But that's going to do it for this episode of Rewind and Rewatch. Thank you all again for listening to this series. We're now like at the 60% point. Like we we could almost see the the uh, we can almost see the finishing line. We've now said farewell to the place that they had their first show, and then over the next kind of two years of shows, we will be starting to wrap things up around here. As then we'll look forward into 2014. Uh, Case, anything you wanted to hit on before we get out of here? No, I'm on Twitter at underscore in your case. Mike is on Twitter at Fujiheo with two eyes like Don Fuji. And this podcast can be found on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. You did most of the work for me, so I'm just going to say for Case, I'm Mike, and we'll catch you next time. Open the Voice Gate. Take care.